Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 5 doesn't begin as such, but it's very early on in Book 5 that we find Augustine bringing into question his semi-commitment to Manichaeism. And this happens because of his encounter with somebody who's supposed to explain it all, who is not able to explain it all, not able to provide the intelligibility, the answers that Augustine is looking for. And Manichaeism is, is something that he is attracted to early on, much to the chagrin of his Orthodox Catholic mother, Monica, who would prefer, of course, that he's within the Christian church. Manichaeism is kind of a blend of several different religions brought together by Mani, that's why it's called Manichaeism, which became effectively a world religion and a rival both to Christianity and to other religions within the Roman Empire. One thing you can say about it is that it is a Gnostic take. So it's one of the varieties of Gnosticism. There are many different varieties, very often at odds with each other. And, you know, what does this mean? There's a doctrine that the human beings are essentially sparks of the divine caught up in matter. Maybe not all human beings are like that. Some are just, you know, meat mechanisms. And there's ways to get ourselves out of that, to ascend beyond the world, which was created by a bad deity that thinks that it's really, the, you know, the top deity. But we want to get out of that. And so there are ascetic practices. There's all sorts of teachings by Manny himself who views himself as being sort of the culmination of a religious path that is uh, being taught by other people prior to Manny coming, for instance, Jesus Christ. They say that the Christians have effectively Judaized the Christian revelation and scriptures. It also traces back Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and to Zoroaster. But Manny is actually doing his own writings and, you know, brings about this community that Augustine is engaged with. And he's finding that he's got a lot of doubts. By this time, Augustine has been, you know, off and on reading Christian scriptures, not finding a lot helpful in those at that point in the work for him. They haven't been opened up adequately. He's also studied quite a few of the philosophers and, you know, probably more than are mentioned in here. You know, we, we know that he, for example, has read Cicero's Hortensius and that's got him going into it. We know that he's read the academic skeptics. We know that he's either read or is going to be reading the Platonists. He's read Epicureans. He would have encountered this in his profession of teaching rhetoric in part because it wasn't as if there was a hard and fast dividing line. Here's where philosophy is. Here's where rhetoric is. I mean, Aristotle himself wrote a, a book on rhetoric, right, that was used as one of the handbooks. And so Augustine has had a chance to, you know, see what philosophers have to say. And he tells us that when I compared the doctrines of the philosophers with the long fables of the Manichaeans, I found much more probable the words of the philosophers who were, quote, able to know so much as to make a 
judgment of the world, although it's Lord they did not find. And then he says, you know, the philosophers, they're able to make sense out of the natural world. They're not quite ascending from it up to God. So there's a significant issue there. But he says, by their own minds and that ingenuity with which you endowed them, they investigated these matters. What matters? The stars and the sands, the constellations, the courses of the planets. Many years in advance, they foretold eclipses of the great luminaries, the sun and the moon, telling on what day, at what hour, and what extent they would be. And their calculations did not fail them. And so this is good. This is knowledge. This is something kind of cool. And now, what import does this have? Augustine goes on to say, they didn't know you, God, right? They suffer an eclipse of, of your light, but... They certainly seem to know a hell of a lot more than these Manichaeans do, right? And so they're missing something, but they're also providing, you know, some understanding of, like he says, solstices, equinoxes, eclipses of the greater lights. And who doesn't actually explain this adequately? Manny! So Manny has all sorts of other things. When Augustine is talking about fables, he means a kind of mythology, a Gnostic mythology. And Manny writes about natural phenomena at points, but unfortunately gets them wrong. So he says, who was it that requested someone called Manny to write about these things? Apart from knowledge in these matters, true piety can yet be learned. You know, of this Manny could be ignorant, even though he knew the other matters perfectly. But in truth... He did not know these subjects, yet brazenly presumed to teach them. He plainly could not attain to knowledge of piety. So he's missing two things, knowledge of God, knowledge of the natural world. And so when you compare him to the other natural philosophers that are out there, Manny looks kind of silly. Manny looks kind of foolish. And this is not Augustine saying, well, I'm throwing this out altogether, but it certainly calls things into question. There's a very interesting digression that I don't want to pass over in these chapters about the relationship between religion and natural philosophy, one that I think is relevant for people even in our time. So Augustine says, when I hear this or that brother Christian who's ignorant of these subjects and thinks one thing in place of another, I can regard such a man with patience as he gives his opinion. I cannot see how it will harm him if he's perhaps an ignorant with regard to the position or condition of some corporeal creature like the heavenly bodies, so long as he does believe things unworthy of you, Lord, creator of all things. However, it is very harmful to him if he thinks that this belongs to the very essence of religious teaching and obstinately presumes to assert what he is ignorant of. Such weakness in the cradle days of a man's faith is put up with by charity until this person grows up. But as to that one who dared to become the teacher, you know, he, he goes on with that. What is he actually saying there? You know, when it comes to natural phenomena, if Christians get those wrong, you know, if they think that rain is God shedding tears over the unhappiness of mankind or something like that, who cares? That's just somebody being ignorant. Unless they're actually drawing conclusions about what God is, which could be the case, right? Was, does God get sad? Or about how we ought to behave, faith and morals, we could say. It doesn't matter. And we, here we could think about something. When the Galileo incident, which is much more complex than the thumbnail sketches that people provide, occurred, Galileo was actually like trying to engineer a crisis of his own, and the church, at least the members of the church there involved with him, were also being kind of jerks and digging in. There were many people in Christendom who were like, this is not a real thing. 
whether the Earth rotates around the sun or the planets or whether things fall at certain speeds in relation to each other, pick whatever experiment you want from physical science, it doesn't really impinge on what we should be focusing on, right? It's not going to kill anybody to have mistaken ideas about this when it comes to, you know, merely physical matters, so long as they've got their other, as we say, their other ducks in a row. And so Augustine is saying something that's kind of important here to keep in mind. Now, coming back to the, the Faustus thing. So why is Augustine so interested in Faustus? He tells us, this is in chapter six, for almost nine years, during which my errant mind had hearkened to these men, the Manichaeans, I awaited with intense longing the coming of this Faustus, right? And he says that because Faustus is going to be here, I can actually ask the questions and get real answers. Others among them who had chance to meet failed to answer my questions and objections, but they promised me that when he came and took part in these discussions, these problems, even harder ones I might present, would be easily and clearly settled. So raising the expectations pretty high, right? But reasonably so. If a religion is going to be worth anything, or you could say a philosophy or political doctrine, there ought to be somebody who can make sense of it and address objections, right? We can say this with like stoicism, for example. If you read some stoic literature and you're like, damn, I, this doesn't make sense to me. I've got all sorts of objections. Hopefully there's somebody who's actually thought those things through and can explain it adequately. Well, it's the same thing with Manichaeism. What does Augustine find? So he finds that in public, in the crowd, this Faustus guy seems like he's on top of everything. When he came, I found he was gracious and pleasant in his conversation on the topics on which they usually speak. He could talk along much more agreeably. But could he actually address things in reality? And he says this wasn't the case. And I found this out by hanging out with Faustus personally. He says, I was delighted with him together with many others, indeed more so than many of them. I praised and extolled him, but I took it amiss that in the midst of a crowd of listeners, I could not bring forward and share with him my own worrisome questions in personal conferences and by offering and receiving arguments. When I was able to do this, what happens? I began with some friends to lay siege to his ears, right? I set forth certain things that were disturbing me and I saw at once the man was unskilled in the liberal arts with the exception of grammar, and with that only in an elementary way, he'd read some of Cicero's orations, a few books of Seneca, certain things of the poets, and whatever volumes of his sect were written in Latin. And he had an easy eloquence, but he couldn't satisfactorily answer the questions on the basis of knowledge, or even on the basis of what other people are saying, because he doesn't have a strong, solid basis in the liberal arts. Augustine is finding out that actually maybe this guy is a teacher, Augustine can't learn much from him because Augustine already knows more. And what is Faustus doing? Augustine says, the Manichaean's books are filled with long spun out tales of the heavens, the stars, the sun, and the moon. Having compared their accounts with the mathematical solutions I read elsewhere, I didn't think that Faustus was able to explain these matters with exactness or to show that they are such as is found in Manny's books or that an equally good solution could be drawn from these. And now Faustus 
to his credit, is rather modest. He's actually honest. He's like, "Uh, you know, I don't actually know this stuff. I can't explain this. And he says he knew that he did not know these subjects. He was not ashamed to admit it, right? But he says he was not completely ignorant of his own ignorance. He didn't want to engage rashly in a discussion from which he had no way out or no easy way of retreat. He appealed to me the more for this. This is something that Augustine says, this is a good trait of Faustus. The more beautiful than all those things I desire to know is the modest mind that admits its own limitations. But these are still limitations. And so Augustine is not getting what he's looking for from Faustus. There's a very interesting metaphor that we're seeing at the end of chapter 7. He tells us that Faustus himself was a snare or a noose, something that you would be you would be hung by, something you would be captured by, a loquius in Latin. Faustus was a snare of death to many. How was he a snare of death to many? By giving them the impression that they actually knew things about God, about how they ought to live by teaching a false doctrine and doing so in such a way that was convincing to other people. But Augustine says something really interesting here. So that was to other people. And he says, he now began, Faustus began, neither knowing nor willing it to loosen the snare in which I was caught. What is the snare in which Augustine is caught? You know, a commitment to Manichaeism and a sort of counter commitment to thinking that the Christian scriptures don't really make sense. So it's a turning point for Augustine to actually meet this guy and to realize that he's not going to get from Faustus what it is that he was hoping for, either from Faustus or from Manichaeism. And this allows him to be able to move on with his quest that runs throughout the entirety of the autobiographical portions of his confessions. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.